Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. One of the ways that we mark the passage of time is by shared activities that we do week after week, month after month, year after year. It might be processing apples as a family, might be mushroom harvesting, sitting down to cheer for your favorite sports team, a regular family game night, a fall girls weekend, annual couples conference, small group you meet with regularly, worship gatherings, three capes relay, annual trip to music festival with friends, annual MDS service trip, Christmas at grandma's house, Our shared rituals do more for us than we even realize. They don't only mark the passing of time. They give us a sense of belonging. They bring us together. They offer moments of reprieve and relief from the pressures of daily life. They bring a sense of predictability and constancy to a life that can feel chaotic and unpredictable, like No matter how crazy life gets, when you're doing this shared ritual, you feel like it's it's some some kind of reprieve. Our shared rituals connect us to a meaningful past. They infuse us with hope for the future. When we engage in our shared ritual, we feel like everything's going to be all right. There's a social psychologist, Shira Gabriel, who calls our shared rituals choreographed events and that means there's a story behind the actions we're acting out something with a deeper meaning like the football game that you're watching isn't only about yards and downs and extra points it's about struggle and overcoming or those mushrooms that you are hunting and then frying up it's not just that you enjoy the taste of fungus They're about seeking and finding and gratitude and provision and nature and bounty. Our shared rituals somehow have something to say that's larger than what they actually are. They have something to say about life. Somehow there's a connection to the divine, the sacred. Even tailgate parties include Hail Mary prayers. Our shared rituals transport us. They give us a feeling of transcendence, like this is a moment beyond the ordinary. Somehow there's a story and energy and emotion that causes us to feel connected to others, self, life, the sacred, our creator. So a reflection or discussion question. We chatted about this together on Sunday. Name some of the shared rituals that are a part of your life and look at which of the boxes they check.
there's a shared ritual that Luke tells us the family of Jesus used to take part in every year along with their friends and relatives. This is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 39. It was a shared ritual of making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in late March or early April for the festival of Passover. Luke calls it their custom. Now, travel was dangerous in those days, and the journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem took three to five days of walking. People made this annual spiritual pilgrimage in caravans of up to a hundred people. The, the traveling was part of the whole event with friends and family and relatives. It was the biggest event of the entire year. During Passover, Jerusalem turned into a zoo. It wasn't uncommon for the population to triple from 50,000 to 180,000. It became unbelievably loud and noisy and busy with people and animals all planning on making sacrifices at the temple. This shared ritual was a reenactment of liberation. It was the choreographed event, a reenactment of the story of God liberating the people of Israel from slavery, saving them from the world's most powerful ruler at that time, Pharaoh. And so every year, Mary and Joseph made the journey back and forth with the caravan to Jerusalem. Every year, little boy Jesus tagged along, playing with his cousins and friends. And the drill was, we temporarily leave our Roman oppression to enact God's liberation. We reenact the liberation from Egypt, secretly wishing that we could experience liberation from Rome. And we go back home to our oppression. Now, one year, it all happened differently. The time of celebrating God's liberation had come to a close. It was time to travel back to Nazareth, back to real life. The caravan of friends and relatives loaded up and headed out, and Mary and Joseph both assumed that Jesus was traveling with the caravan. He's probably down the road with the cousins or up the road with his friends. But after an entire day of walking back towards Nazareth, neither Mary nor Joseph had seen Jesus. You can begin to imagine the panic rising as Mary and Joseph frantically asked aunts and uncles and friends and neighbors and cousins, uh, was Jesus traveling with you today? Have you seen him at all? And everyone gave the same answer. Uh, no, no, we ha I haven't seen him. And suddenly, the trip that was supposed to be the high point of the year was beginning to feel like a nightmare. Mary describes this experience of losing Jesus with a word. It's odunao. The most literal translation is intense pain, anguish. As an emotional experience, it becomes acute torment, mental distress, suffering. We're talking about like a, this is a serious anxiety or panic attack. I personally know what it feels like to lose a child. I remember how I felt while out on a hike on the Wilson River when Cooper disappeared. 
this photo comes from near where this story takes place, but not exactly where it took place. I can distinctly remember the last time that I saw Cooper. He was about 40 to 50 yards ahead of me. He was kind of skip walking, if that's a thing, towards a pinnacle where the, the trail's about, I don't know, 100 to 200 feet above the river, and it takes a big bend, and then it heads down along the river. We were probably three quarters of a mile away from the trailhead or so. So I came up to the place where Cooper had been standing just moments ago, and I looked on down the trail, and no Cooper. I thought, that's odd. I thought, well, maybe he's just out of view. But the farther Molly and I hiked, and the farther we could see down the trail, we realized we can't see him anywhere. And we began yelling for Cooper. Now, we were along the river, and so it's it's hard to really hear very well. We picked up our pace and began running down the trail, calling as we ran. Maybe we just needed to catch up with him. But no Cooper. We began to think the worst had happened. Maybe he had fallen off a ledge somewhere back behind us. It was a steep, rocky hillside. We decided to split up. Molly and I went running in two different directions because we didn't know. Uh, maybe he fell off the trail and was behind us somewhere. So we went down the trail and up the trail, shouting Cooper's name as loud as we possibly could. And if you want to clock my fastest mile time, have me lose my kid. I was charged with adrenaline and I was booking it. And I, I remember the vivid images that came to my mind as I looked down these rocky bluffs and steep ravines, trying to imagine what would Cooper's body look like if he had somehow slipped off the ledge and fallen off a trail? What would his body look like down there? Would I be able to see him or is it too steep right here? And what if he's down there knocked out or broke his neck or worse? What if he can hear me but he can't respond? What if he fell and slid into the river? And interspersed with those thoughts, I was playing the last time that I had seen him in my mind and trying to think of any clues to where he might be and praying that it wasn't the last time that I would ever see him. I remember my eyes scouring the ground for paw prints, blood. What if a cougar grabbed him in an instant and carried him off into the woods? Or would a black bear do that? I remember thinking, what if it was a person? What if a person got him? I could handle thinking about what might happen if I found him with a cougar or fallen off a rock ledge. I didn't want to think about a person. I was trying to fend off what it would feel like thinking, I'm going to have to get back to the car here in a little bit and go find service and call 911. And we're going to have search and rescue out here, scouring the hills for my son's body. Mary calls this experience intense pain, anguish, torment, distress, suffering. And I say, amen, Mary. That's, that's exactly what it is. Can you begin to connect with this feeling at all? Mary and Joseph rushed back to Jerusalem, which meant truly dangerous traveling. It meant leaving the safety of the caravan 
at a time when traveling on these roads was not safe. It meant the holiday was officially over. I wonder, did they try traveling through the night or did they wait until morning to retrace their steps? Had they lost Jesus somewhere on the trail? Had Jesus come up around a bend and marauders saw an opportunity and snatched him? Was Jesus still back in Jerusalem? Mary and Joseph didn't have a couple miles of river trail to search. They had 20 miles of beaten down pilgrimage path. And then they had a city that had tripled in size a few days ago and in a matter of days would be emptying out again, with people leaving in every direction. And there was no 911 hotline to call. There was no search and rescue to call. What if Jesus had been kidnapped into slavery? This is at a time when slave trade wasn't just a black market activity, it was a booming industry that was out in the open. Why wouldn't a slave trader come to Jerusalem at Passover to see who they might nab to sell as a slave? And who better than a 12-year-old boy? Historian Nell Irvin Painter reports that when ancient sources speak of the beauty of slaves, they aren't talking about girls, young women. They're talking about good-looking little boys. Jesus was a prime candidate. Nell Irvin Painter reports that thousands of children entered the slave market every year. And so... I can just see Mary and Joseph replaying in their mind the last time they saw Jesus over and over and over. Would they ever see him again? What does it feel like to have had Jesus and lost Jesus, possibly forever? I want to pause the story at this point. I want to zoom out. Yeah, this this story happened at a particular place in a particular time. And this is a story that happens all the time. It isn't so much a story about a Jesus who hides from us. It's a story about our own lack of awareness. It's a story about the difference between the idea of God that we have in our mind, and the living God. Mary and Joseph aren't the only ones who assumed that Jesus was with them and ended up taking Jesus for granted. We, too, walk miles down the road of life that we've walked a hundred times before, assuming that Jesus is in lockstep with us, because why wouldn't he be? We, too, Assume that we have Jesus figured out. We too have caravans and groups and movements that we travel with. We too have shared rituals, events that we look forward to because we want to feel like everything's going to be okay. And we want that feeling of transcendence and hope and connection. We too have experiences of realizing we've lost Jesus. We're trying to do life as usual. We're trying to do the customs and the routines and the rituals, but the experience is somehow different. We've started down the same old, same old path, but Jesus hasn't started down that path with us. 
and we too come to a dawning realization. The energy just isn't there. Something isn't quite the same as it used to be. Something is off. We've lost Jesus. The music festival that used to be so moving was kind of a dud this year. Or you went to the annual girls weekend, but you felt alone. Or the tailgate party that used to feel so life-giving felt empty. Or the conference you always look forward to felt dry. We too experience distress, disorientation, intense pain, mental anguish, and we too have to figure out what does it mean to leave the caravan and go travel on the open road and go seek Jesus. Now it isn't that we've intentionally walked away from Jesus. We haven't. Often we're in the middle of doing our very best to do what we know. And it isn't that Jesus is being cruel or disrespectful or playing a prank on us. Rather, it's a story of our awareness of Jesus. It's a story of how we walk down familiar paths, assuming that Jesus is in lockstep with us. And Luke uses phrases such as, they were unaware. Joseph and Mary were not aware. They assumed Jesus was elsewhere in the caravan. Other translations say they presumed or they supposed. It can be downright scary and disorienting to realize that what we had assumed and presumed simply is not the case. Theologian Craig Barnes says this. He says, the deep fear behind every loss is that we have been abandoned by the God who should have saved us. The transforming moment in Christian conversion comes when we realize that even God has left us. We then discover it was not God, but our image of God that abandoned us. This frees us to discover more of the mystery of God than we knew. Only then is change possible. When Mary and Joseph finally caught a glimpse of Jesus, we're told he was seated in the middle of the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. They found him in the temple. Now, in the first century world of the temple, teachers and theological experts these kinds of folks, the teacher always sat in the middle. Instead of wrapping up this celebration of the liberating God and traveling home with his parents back to the same old, same old oppression, Jesus had stayed in Jerusalem to talk with the teachers, the leaders, anyone who wanted to listen about this liberating God. And somehow, what this 12-year-old boy had to say about this liberating God was so poignant, so captivating and thoughtful and deep and life-giving that the people and the teachers alike wanted to drink it in. They all took the posture of students. But the teaching came to an abrupt end as Jesus' parents rushed in and Mary blurted out, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously or in literal pain searching for you. And yes, by the way, we found Cooper. He had booked it to the trailhead. 
But this brings us to the very first recorded words of Jesus in the entire Bible. He says, Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I had to be here dealing with the things of my father? And yeah, we can call this a story of Jesus coming into his own and growing up and realizing his relationship with God. But there's more here. And Mary admits it. She says, we didn't understand at the time. We had no idea what he was talking about. But she also says she treasured this experience. She held on to it. Now, not to get too homeworky here, but the literal Greek sentence of Jesus goes something like this. His words are, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in the, of my father? Uh, in the what of your father? Like, excuse me, Jesus, <laughs> please finish the sentence. It's in the, of my father. That's the sentence. Biblical translators fill in the blank when they translate to English with, they add the word house or affairs or interests or business or the people of my father. They add all of these kinds of words, but Jesus just leaves it blank. Didn't you know I had to be in the of my father? And I get such a kick out of that because it actually captures the point Jesus is making. Because it's larger than, oh, this place or this project or these people. The very first recorded words of Jesus are, in essence, you know how to find me. That's the message that I hear underneath Jesus' words. Now let that sink in for just a moment. Let that sink in to your seeking, your disorientation, your panic, your pain, your myriad of questions, your self-doubt. Jesus says to you, you know how to find me. Jesus says, when you're walking away, assuming that I'm following right along, and then when you feel like you've lost me, you know how to find me. Brian Zond describes this pattern like this. It's, we have Jesus, we lose Jesus. We seek Jesus, we find Jesus, we rethink Jesus, we grow. Quaker mystic Thomas Kelly says it this way. He says, deep within us all, there is an amazing inner sanctuary of the soul, a holy place, a divine center, a speaking voice to which we may continuously return. Eternity is at our hearts, pressing upon our time-torn lives, warming us with intimations of an astounding destiny, calling us home unto itself. Elizabeth Barrett Browning says, Earth is crammed with heaven. And every common bush a fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries and daub their natural faces unaware. Jesus, the 12-year-old, says, you know how to find me. And Jesus, the 33-year-old, says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. I want to close by 
walking you through a simple exercise that has helped me to find Jesus in the midst of my own overwhelm over and over. I want to invite you to scroll back in your own memory of a recent experience of overwhelm, struggle, stress, anguish. Maybe it was at work with your spouse, family, community, maybe within yourself. Go back and replay that experience, replay that memory in your mind. And as you replay that, say to Jesus, show me Jesus where you were in this experience. What were you saying? What were you doing? And then sit and just wait. Wait in the darkness. Don't try to concoct an answer. Just sit and wait and see how Jesus shows up. Jesus says, you know how to find me. Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.